Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's gospel lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sons reign on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, it's so good to see you all and to be with you on this holiday weekend, and I certainly want to add my word of greeting to that of Shelby's that she shared with you. Uh, we are grateful to be in worship with you on this uh, hot summer day, uh, almost summer. It seems like summer is hit with a vengeance, and I can already say that if nothing else were to happen in this worship service, what happened at the very beginning of this worship service, I will never forget to see Scarlett slowly coming down the aisle, running into the arms of her mother, reminds me of really what worship is all about. And so it's good to be with you all, especially today as we run into the arms of our Heavenly Father and worship today. Um, summer has hit. I had a wedding yesterday, an outdoor wedding at 5 o'clock in a black robe and was transfigured almost by the heat. Uh, the wedding became something of a baptism, as you can understand, and it was so hot yesterday. I'm glad you asked. It was so hot, I actually saw a chicken lay an omelet. I mean, it was, it was, it was really hot. I mean, we were out at Loveless, so there's a lot of chickens out there. It was really, really, really hot yesterday. It was so hot that Jehovah's Witnesses have gone to telemarketing. It's really hot. I'm telling you, it was so hot yesterday. It was so hot that I actually saw a funeral procession going through a drive through at a Dairy Queen. I mean, that is really, really hot. So enough of that. We welcome you. I do want to ask our graduates to stand. We have some graduates that are with us today who have either just graduated or are getting ready to graduate. You all stand. I know there's at least several in the youth choir and some out here. We are so proud of you, and they're going everywhere from UCLA, UCLA to Duke to Wittenberg to the University of Tennessee and all over, and we're very, very proud of you. We also have some friends that are here with us from Lebanon today that are partners in ministry. Uh, several of us will be going to Beirut mid-June, and our friends from Lebanon, we'd like for you to stand there with John and Ann Frame. Where are you all? Please stand right back here. It's a real honor. It's an honor to have you with us, and we look forward to our ongoing relationship. Well, if you have been here during the month of May, you know that we began on the first weekend of this month in this series called Neighbors, which I think is a, a, critical, a critical piece, a critical series to the life and mission of our church. You may not know that we have just come up with a vision statement that has sort of, we've sort of discerned as to who we're to be 
in the neighborhood uh, in this area of the United States. And we have discerned that Brentwood United Methodist Church is to be the heart of the community, creating a culture of love forged through relationships with Christ and each other, even in the hard places. That's who we are. And so we're continuing our series in the fourth week, this eight-week series on neighbors, with what I think is an extremely challenging word from Jesus, where Jesus is actually expanding the concept of what it means to be a neighbor. G.K. Chesterton, the British essayist of the 20th century, said of this particular passage, Jesus tells us to love our neighbors and our enemies probably because they're generally the same people. Our neighbors sometimes are our enemies. If you were here last week, we talked about the great commandment. It's interesting how the Gospel of Matthew has two pillars, the great commandment and the great commission, Matthew 22 and Matthew 28. And in that text, we saw last week how this theological teacher, a scribe, a Pharisee, came to Jesus with a trick question and asked him which commandment of all in the Torah is the greatest. The Pharisees had discerned no less than 613 commandments in the Hebrew Scripture. So you can imagine that for someone to pick and choose between these might seem a little presumptuous to a religious crowd, and there were a lot of ways for Jesus to go wrong in answering that question. But answer it he did by pointing to two verses in the Torah. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith, which says, love God with all you got. <laughs> love God with heart, mind, and soul. And then he added to it the text from Leviticus 19, 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, this is the crux of biblical faith. This, this is the essence of the Jewish religion and, of course, of Judeo-Christian perspective as well. But the real question in Jesus' day, which I think is still pertinent today, is who is my neighbor and what is my responsibility to my neighbor? Don, in the text that you read for us this morning, which is part and parcel of the Sermon on the Mount that stretches through Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus again references this text from Leviticus. Now, if you read this verse, Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, if you read it out of context, it seems to limit the idea of neighbor to the members of our own tribe. It sounds like that at first. Like that the only people you really have to serve as a neighbor are people who are part of your own clan or your own family or your own ethnic group. Listen to the text. You must not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. This is Leviticus. You must not hate your fellow Israelite. You must not take revenge nor hold a grudge against any of your people. Instead, you must love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. So when you take that verse out of context, it sounds like that the injunction is confined to my people. Methodist people, Southeastern people, Tennessee people, Williamson County people. 
When you read it out of context, it sounds like it's just another form of tribalism, and consequently, there were those, there were those in the Jewish faith, a few, who resolved then that it must be okay to shun those outside my tribe. In fact, we know that there were some circles that actually taught this. The Essenes, who were kind of the isolationist branch of Judaism, who lived out in Qumran that we visited uh, back in March on the Dead Sea, they lived by this dictate, love the brothers, hate the outsider. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, it was being said sometimes by Jesus' own tribe. They were actually teaching some that it's all right, it's perfectly acceptable to disregard and discount the outsider based on Leviticus 19.18. Of course, we know that's a blatant distortion of the text because if you're going to reach that conclusion, you know what you have to do? You have to ignore the rest of the chapter. If you go back a few verses to Leviticus 19 verses 9 and 10, the word says, when you harvest your field, don't gather all the grapes, leave some for the poor and the immigrant for the outsider, for you once were an immigrant. To take this text out of context, you'd have to skip over verse 34, Leviticus 19, that says, and I quote, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the outsider as an insider, for you once were outsiders in Egypt. I think this is the danger sometimes of what we call proof texting. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Amen? Amen. There's a line, you remember reading The Merchant of Venice in high school, there's a line from Shakespeare where he says, and I quote, there is no error so gross, but some sober brow will bless it with a proper text. Proof text. Never mind the fact that Proverbs 25, verse 21 says, look, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give her a drink. And that sounds a little bit more like mercy than disregard. Sounds more like love, really, than hate. So the Scripture, let me just set the record straight. The Scripture is not limiting the concept of neighbor to members of my tribe or your tribe. To the contrary, Jesus is actually enlarging the term to include our opponents and our adversaries. By the way, if you didn't know, the word for enemy in the Greek is ekthros. It means one who is openly hostile, one who is bent on doing you harm. And Jesus has the audacity to say to his disciples, you are to love that person who wants to do you harm. Now, let me give you some relief. That word love, in this case, doesn't have anything to do with warm, fuzzy feelings. We said last week, you don't have to like someone in order to love someone. I got a big amen from Sherry on that. But in this case, love, as Jesus taught, it's not about feelings. 
It's about action. In fact, earlier in the same signature sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually taught us how to respond to people who want to do us harm. This is what he said. When somebody backhands you in the face, turn the other cheek. We have a name for that. It's called nonviolent response. He went on to say, if a Roman soldier commands you to carry his pack for a mile, which by the law was permissible in that day, then you offer to go a second mile. This is where that phrase comes from, people who go the second mile. It means don't reciprocate evil for evil. It means that as a child of God, we are to diffuse evil with love. And this is more than passive resistance. It's positive love. And why does Jesus call us to do that? So that we might be children of the Father. It's interesting. He doesn't say to do this merely because of humanitarian ideals, though that's important. He doesn't say it because he has an early doctrine of human rights. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be acting as children of your Father in heaven. By the way, in case you didn't know, that's exactly what Jesus did on Good Friday. That's what Jesus did when they nailed him to the tree. Jesus actually prayed for the people who lynched him. Have you ever noticed that when you pray for someone who wishes you harm, it's much harder to wish them harm after you've prayed for them. That's why sometimes I don't want to pray. I want to get even. You become compassionate sometimes towards the one for whom you pray. In fact, if you look in your bulletin, that's the neighbor challenge for this week, is to find someone and ask them how you can pray for them. If you're a little too vain for that, just blame me. Just say, well, the pastor told us to do it, and so is there anything I can pray with you about? That's our challenge. Because when you pray for someone, it's almost impossible not to care about them. Emerson said, prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. Have you ever noticed this, that when you pray for another, suddenly you begin to see that person through God's eyes and not just your own, and it doesn't make you like them, but it enables you to love them. And this is the conduct becoming of a disciple. We do it in order to demonstrate what God's love looks like. This is how God loves in fact, Jesus says God makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, the nice and the nasty. God sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, he says, what bonus should you get for that? Why don't even the tax collectors do this? And if you greet, if you say hi, hello, hug the neck, pass the peace only to your brothers and sisters, what, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same what Jesus is saying is we're called to love others just as God loves us. And here's the point of the whole text. There's a theological point in play 
in Matthew 5, and it's simply this. The love of God is indiscriminate. God doesn't play favorites. I do. You do. Shelby did this morning in front of God and everybody. But the same feeling that a mother has for a child is the feeling that God has for you. God doesn't operate by the merit system. Isn't that wonderful? Anybody remember the parable of the laborers? I love that story. Where the landowner goes out to the city square and picks up the hourly workers who have gathered there who are looking to work for pay. He picks up a truckload at six o'clock in the morning and agrees with them they'll work for a denarius, 12-hour workday, but that's not enough. So he goes back at nine and fills the truck. He says, I'll pay you what's right. He goes back at noon. He goes back at three. He goes back at five. There are people at five. They haven't been hired. They're going to work one hour. He says, I'll pay you what's right. And you remember at the end of the day, the accountant comes and sets up his desk under the shade tree, and he's going to pay out what folks deserve. And the 12-hour workers can't help but notice that the one-hour folks are getting the same pay as they who have borne the heat of the day. Now, you can't run a business that way, but that's the kingdom. And all of a sudden, the fussing and the whining and the fighting begins. And the landowner replies to those who have been in the field all day, did you not agree to work for me for a denarius? Take then what belongs to you and go. I choose to give these latecomers the same as I give you. Am I not free to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you just begrudge my generosity? Ding, 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 ding. All of a sudden, everything gets quiet because that's the problem, begrudging grace. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's really hard just to let God be God when I want to be God. Indiscriminate love. I remember a prayer. I learned it as a boy. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You remember this? There's, there's a, a music piece that's written Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, let me sow faith. Where there's despair, sow hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. I've gotten to the point where I I think indiscriminate love begins with listening. Not with your mouth, and that's hard for a preacher to say, but with your ears. There's a reason you have two ears and one mouth. But I'll confess to you, and you know this to be true, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm a lot better at talking than I am at listening. Anybody else, don't raise your hand. I'm sure I'm the only one. I went to a meeting last week in Kansas City. I didn't go because I agreed with everybody there. I went to represent you and the Tennessee Conference and me. I went to listen. 
I went because I was trying to understand, not just to be understood. And you may know this already, but I'm involved in a lot of conversations with God and with you and many groups. And I've discovered that what it means to love begins with your ears. I think it was Margaret Wheatley who said, conversation is the currency of love. And I sat at a table in Kansas City with the invitation of Adam Hamilton with a diverse group of people. They were all over the board, politically, theologically, philosophically, in every way. The group just covered the spectrum. And I have to tell you, it was tough conversation. And at first, to be honest with you, I wanted to, I wanted to come home. But as time went on, we got to know each other, we talked, we cried, <laughs> we laughed, we prayed, we worshiped, and I discovered that the only thing that most of us in the room had in common was that we loved Jesus, and we're convinced that Jesus loves us. I've discovered that when you get to know each other, you stop trying to change each other and you begin to love each other, and then God changes each other. I was reminded of an article that was written by Jonathan Merritt. Some of you have read his writing. He's a millennial. He's a PK, preacher's kid, or a TO, theological offspring. I, I love PKs. I are one. In fact, I love them so much, we have two. Jonathan's dad, James. Southern Baptist pastor, Snellville Baptist Church, which was a church just down the road from where I served in Lawrenceville. Uh, other than his dad being a Baptist, he's a good guy. He's a wonderful guy. Kidding. So I went to this ecumenical meeting, and I heard Jonathan Merritt speak, and this is what he said. This, among other things, this is what he said. In times of deep cultural division... Faith communities have a choice. Either they will find creative ways to live with the tension that comes with diversity and disagreement, or they will divide into echo chambers in which everyone more or less thinks the same way, and too often they choose the latter, opting for a revolution leading to irrelevance. I don't know if you know it, but there's an echo chamber in the narthex. Have you found it? There's a spot right there by the stairs where when you stand there, you can hear your voice all over the house. It sounds like you're being amplified. It's an echo chamber. And I've discovered that echo chambers have no political perspective that is unique to them. They are no respecter of perspectives. They occur on all sides. And what happens is subgroups with partial truths pretend to speak for the whole at the expense of the whole, which often gives way to hyper-individualism and, and tribalism that winds up dividing the world into echo chambers where we can no longer communicate. There is a group, there's an organization called Better Angels. They meet in Fairview. They're meeting in 300 communities in the nation now. It started in Lebanon, Ohio, about the time of the election in 2016, where there were people in this small community, traditionalists and progressives, Republicans and Democrats, who could no longer have conversation with each other without contempt. 
And Better Angels was a community that began by bringing eight of each group to the table and praying together and talking together to the point that people could say, oh, you're human too? Let's do lunch. We are a part of a tribe, the chief of whom is Jesus, who John calls the truth. But the chief never teaches us to abhor our opponents. It teaches us to love them as we love ourselves. And I don't always do that well. But God isn't finished with me or with you. The last thing our chief says in this text, I almost don't want to say it. It sounds absurd. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sounds like a setup to failure. Sounds impossible. In fact, it sounds a little bit like turning the cheek when somebody slaps you. It sounds a little bit like going the second mile when someone coerces you. It sounds like loving an enemy neighbor. But the word perfect in Greek is teleos. It doesn't mean mistake-free. It means grown-up. It means to become mature so that our motives and our intentions might become selfless and merciful and loving. And that's impossible without Jesus. But with Jesus, all things are possible. Last word. We spent a few days at Pauly's Island after uh, my daughter's graduation I told you about last week. Uh, one morning I decided both our children were with us and it's different, you know, now when they're adults. Uh, we were thrilled that they came and we were thrilled when they left. It was a wonderful time. And so one morning before the sun came up, I, I needed a little solitude, frankly, and so I took a long walk to the point on the beach all alone. I watched the sunrise. I, I felt the water and the sand on my toes. And I was enjoying all the peace and quiet, and suddenly it was interrupted. My solitude was interrupted by a flock of birds, pelicans, that were flying in formation across the sky, huge birds, gliding close together. I have no idea how they can do that. Never bumping into each other, so close to one another, but never injuring the other. Scientists tell us that there are three rules that those birds follow in order to fly in harmony. Number one, they maintain a minimum distance between themselves and their neighbor. Number two, they don't fly at the same speed uh, uh, as, as, as other flocks. They fly at the same speed as their flock. At the same, they're not competing with their neighbor, but they're flying with their neighbor. And number three, they always fly toward the center of the flock. I think we could take a page from the pelicans 
we fly towards the center of the flock in the church, and the center for us is a Savior whose nature is love and whose mission is never confined to an echo chamber, but is intended for all the world, South Africa, Lebanon, Israel, all the world. And that mission is not to change your neighbor, but to love your neighbor as yourself so that you might become sons and daughters of the Father to his glory. And then when that happens, there is a change that occurs both in the one who is loved and the one who's doing the loving. And that's the gospel. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.